0: Tradcast Express. Express. Tradcast Express. It's Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. What game is Francis playing with the priestly fraternity of St. Peter? That is the title of our latest blog post, which you can find at novusordo.watch.org. Most of you listening now have probably heard about this already, but according to reports from the Fraternity of St. Peter, not to be confused with the Lefebvre Society of St. Pius X, Francis gave them a written decree in which he assures them that they are not subject to the anti-traditional mass decree Traditionis Custodes and will be permitted to continue to use the Roman Missal of 1962 and also administer the other sacraments in the traditional rite in their own churches, of which there actually aren't all that many. Although the FSSP is breathing a huge sigh of relief, this rather unexpected development has a lot of people scratching their heads, and a number of semi-trat commentators I've seen online so far are not exactly in ecstasy over this, simply because they've learned not to trust Jorge Bergoglio. It is noteworthy, by the way, that so far the Vatican has not confirmed the existence of this decree, nor has a scan of it been made available. The only source affirming its existence so far is the Fraternity of St. Peter. Now, of course, they're not going to lie about that, Not only would that be uncharitable to suppose, it also wouldn't make a whole lot of sense because lying about this would be of no benefit to them. But then, who knows what the frankster is up to? Wouldn't surprise me if he ends up denying the authenticity of the decree. Or hey, maybe he wrote it in magic ink. Or perhaps he will simply revoke it again in a few weeks. Keep in mind that... What Francis giveth, Francis can also taketh away. I'd say, trust Bergoglio at your own risk. In any case, you can read all about that, see various reactions and our own analysis and commentary at novosordowatch.org slash wire. The blog post dated February 22nd, entitled What Game? is Francis playing with the Fraternity of St. Peter. And, spoiler alert, although we do not profess to know just what game he's playing, what we do know is that he's cheating. In other news, the website 1Peter5 published an article by Jeremiah Bannister on January 15th of this year with the title Re-evangelizing Our Separated Brethren... The state of A contests. Now, I have to say, I'm touched. You know, that finally someone would reach out to us lost souls and try to. Wait a minute. What is Bannister doing? Evangelization? Does he not know that his own definitely valid pope isn't really into that sort of thing? And besides, just a few weeks ago, on February 2nd, Francis stated during his general audience that no one can exclude himself from the Church and that even apostates are part of the communion of saints on account of their baptism. So, what's Bannister worried about? Separated brethren. Furthermore, in his 2019 so-called Apostolic Exhortation Christus Vivit, paragraph number 154, the false pope Bannister wants to convert us to, wrote, quote, "...friendship with Jesus cannot be broken. He never leaves us, even though at times it appears that he keeps silent. He never breaks his covenant. He simply asks that we not abandon him. But even if we stray from him, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself." Unquote. Now that final clause... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is a quote from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. It's too bad Francis didn't also quote the preceding verse, verse 12, which says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So much for our friendship with Christ being unbreakable. Obviously, mortal sin will break it. Yeah, I think I know why Francis didn't quote that part. Now, the ever-so-solicitous Mr. Bannister writes in his article that his intention is to lead Sedevacontists, quote, back to that truly traditional posture of assent and obedience that so fittingly becomes the faithful son and daughter of Rome, in full communion with the Catholic Church, unquote. So surely he would never himself deviate from France's teachings, right? So then, what's this business of re-evangelizing Sedevacantus about? Now, I have to say that Bannister's article is devoid of real substance. It's basically a fluff piece that tries to impress... But it runs pretty much on rhetoric, patronizing and logically fallacious rhetoric at that. The way it reads, you get the impression that the author is leading up to some great slam dunk refutation of Sede Vacantism, but then that refutation never comes. He tries to paint Sedevacantists as Protestants, while ignoring the fact that the one openly pushing Protestant ideas is the very Pope. He's trying to convert us to. It is Francis who had the Martin Luther statue in the Vatican. It's Francis who said in one of his many airplane interviews that he believes Luther was right on the doctrine of justification, which was put under anathema by the Council of Trent, by the way. It is Francis who said he likes the Lutherans who follow the true faith of Jesus Christ. It is Francis, whose favorite exorcist is a Lutheran pseudo-bishop. It's Francis who told Lutherans from Finland that they are the faithful people of God. It is Francis who gave a gorgeous Eucharistic chalice to a Lutheran pastor in Rome. It is Francis who, during Corpus Christi of 2019, said that Jesus becomes bread in the Holy Eucharist, that it's God contained in a piece of bread. It's Francis who said that Catholics and Lutherans possess a common justification in Christ and are members of one and the same mystical body of Christ. And it is Francis who, as a young student in Scandinavia, once filled in for a Lutheran pastor to conduct a Lutheran worship service. Folks, you can't make this stuff up. But we are the Protestants who have to be evangelized? Let me make a suggestion. If Jeremiah Bannister wants to evangelize someone, start with Jorge Bergoglio. So, Bannister insists on the need for an ultimate living authority in the Church. Fair enough. Fair enough. But he leaves out of account the inconvenient fact that if Francis is that living authority, then we don't need an ultimate living authority, because then that authority would only be a great hindrance, not a help to our salvation. See, Christ instituted an ultimate living authority not for its own sake, but for the sake of the salvation of souls. So, no thanks, Mr. Bannister. We are sedevacantis. We reject your pseudo-popes precisely because we don't care to be Protestants. Next, let's turn to an article released over at The Remnant on February 16th written by Dr. Robert Morrison. It's entitled, Francis May or May Not Be Pope. What are we going to do about it? In it, the author concedes that Francis seems dedicated to destroying the papacy and that he basically accepts every religion other than Catholicism. But for some reason, Morris then asserts that Francis, quote, may take the most pleasure "...in seeing scores of faithful Catholics declare that he is not Pope." I don't think so. Although he certainly does enjoy creating chaos, the one thing his whole charade runs on is the idea that he is the Pope of the Catholic Church. If you take that away from him, everything collapses. So no, I don't think that he would take pleasure in people concluding he's not the Pope especially not his own security people like the Vatican police and the Swiss guards, because they could just gently accompany him off the Vatican premises. Anyway, Morrison recommends we let ourselves be guided by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. He doesn't say why. Apparently, each Catholic can just choose to follow a bishop he likes, except the Pope, of course. And... Lefebvre said that he didn't consider himself qualified to say whether Paul VI was the Pope or not. On the other hand, apparently he did consider himself qualified enough to reject Paul VI's magisterium and his liturgical reforms, especially the New Mass and so on. Isn't that interesting? Look, folks, this is not a question of authority. It's a question of logic if the apparent pope imposes heresy on the church or other dangerous errors, and if he imposes invalid or otherwise sacrilegious liturgical rites that in themselves are harmful to souls and lead the faithful astray, and if the church teaches that a true pope cannot do such a thing, then it is not only permitted but necessary for you to conclude that the apparent Pope is not a true Pope, but a false one. That's all it is. So, Morrison is entirely on the wrong track when he asks, quote, On whose authority, then, should traditional Catholics base their decision to declare that Francis is not the Pope? If the answer is that they should simply trust the authority of the Sede Sedevacantist leadership, how would they know which of the competing Sede Sedevacantist groups to follow? Dr. Morrison, you're not supposed to base your decision that Francis isn't the Pope on someone's authority. You're supposed to logically infer it from the fact that Francis continually does things a true Pope is divinely prevented from doing. Now, we can talk about exactly what those facts are, But that is the fundamental reality that you have to deal with and that you've apparently completely misunderstood. In any case, we might as well throw the question back at Morrison. If recognize and resist is the right answer, how do you know how much resistance and with regard to what is right? Should you follow the remnant or church militant or the wanderer or EWTN or what? It's not like all those resistance outlets are on the same page, not by far. Issues among Sedevacanists are easily explained. We have no pope to settle disputes, but if we did, we would submit. That's Catholicism. But you guys, Dr. Morrison, resist the settling of disputes by your highest authority, so you have no remedy even in principle. Yours is the dead end, not Sedevacantism. Now, Morrison asks if there is any net benefit to rejecting Francis' claim to the papacy. Well, yeah. For one thing, you no longer have to believe in a defected church. What Morrison himself calls new church in a prior article, a humanistic man-made institution with a modernist identity. Okay, actually, it takes more than just rejecting Francis to escape a defected church. You also have to reject the other Sordo of popes after Pius Twelfth. But, same idea. Now, Morrison's question is a little odd here, because it assumes that we should only worry about being Sedevacantus if we can derive some kind of practical benefit from it, not because it's true. He says, quote, the state of our position simply exchanges one set of problems for another. Unquote. "Well, it's certainly true that we are still left with plenty of vexations once we understand that the papal claimants after Pius XII are anti-popes, but you know, some problems are genuine and others are impossible. The idea is not to escape all problems or as many as possible, but to assess the situation in accordance with reality. We're not Sedevacanus because we enjoy being Sedevacanus. Heavens no. We're Sedevacanus because we're convinced that this is the only position a Catholic can take, given Catholic teaching and given what has transpired since the death of Pope Pius XII. Our position isn't based on what kind of problems we'd rather be dealing with. It's based on truth. Next, Morrison brings up private revelation in an attempt to discredit sedevacantism, and you know I'm not even going to bother discussing that because sedevacantism is about Catholic theology, and private revelation is not a locus theologicus, a data source for sacred theology. So. Any argument from private revelation for or against Zedvakantism is dead on arrival. Then the author opines that, quote, regardless of whether Francis is Pope, we need fully Catholic bishops to guide us, unquote. But that's just begging the question because a bishop can only be fully Catholic if he is subject to the Pope and in communion with him. See, you can't escape that problem. There is no Catholicism apart from the papacy. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that there must always be a pope or that you cannot be a Catholic when there is no pope reigning. I'm saying that you cannot have Catholicism and leave the pope question aside as if it didn't really matter, as if it were some optional add-on as if you could just cut the papacy out of Catholicism and go on your merry way without it. It's not possible. Next, Morrison trots out that old resistance quote from St. Robert Bellarmine again, which, by the way, has nothing to do with resisting a pope's magisterium or anything like that, but the Semitrats keep using it anyway, you know, as if they were actually interested in following St. Robert Bellarmine on the papacy. And then uh, Morrison concludes by noting that until God shows us the way out of this mess, we have to follow and defend the immutable Catholic faith. You know, that is a great idea. Defend the immutable Catholic faith. Maybe he can start by defending the Catholic dogmas and doctrines on the papacy. And last but not least... Chris Jackson has published another theologically irresponsible piece, also at The Remnant. It is dated February 22nd and entitled, The Perfect Bishop's Response to Traditionis Custodes. In that article, Jackson brings up the case of Christophe de Beaumont, who was Archbishop of Paris in the 18th century, and he props him up as a model for Catholics to follow in resisting a papal decree. Just as Archbishop Beaumont resisted Pope Clement XIV's decree abolishing the Jesuit order in 1773, so Catholics today are called to resist France's decree Traditionis Custodes, Jackson argues. There's just one problem. Jackson simply assumes that Archbishop Beaumont's resistance was praiseworthy and justified. He doesn't prove it. But that's crucial, because just because a bishop resisted the pope doesn't mean it was the right thing to do. How many bishops can you find in church history who refused to comply with a papal decree at some time or another? Just because some bishops were disobedient doesn't mean that they were allowed to be. Come on. Would Jackson also praise a bishop who defied Pope St. Pius X? No? Why not? Why can Pope Clement Fourteenth be defied, but not Pius X? So yes, it is clear that Archbishop Beaumont definitely did resist Clement XIV's brief, Dominus Acredemptor, because he sent the Pope a letter basically saying, heck no, I'm not complying. So... He was in your face about his resistance. But this is serious stuff because Pope Clement had made clear in that decree that anyone who resists it would incur immediate excommunication. And Jackson even quotes that. So what Jackson is actually doing here is he's encouraging Catholics to follow the precedent of a disobedient 18th-century archbishop who incurred automatic excommunication for defying the Pope's suppression of the Jesuits. So this is what I mean when I say that Chris Jackson is being irresponsible with what he's publishing. Now, it is true that Pope Clement's decision to abolish the Jesuits was very controversial, and it brought much harm to the Church— However, and this is what the controversy is about, the pope was caught between a rock and a hard place because of pressures from the secular powers, and he feared that not suppressing the Jesuits would cause even greater harm to the church. See, people have to keep in mind that we now, we get to look at everything with hindsight. But Pope Clement didn't have that privilege. And regardless of whether it was prudent or not, The papal decree was valid, and it had to be followed. When the Pope says that the Jesuit order is no more, then it is no more. That's how the papacy works. And just because one bishop in France didn't comply doesn't mean squat. Interestingly enough, there is another bishop Jackson could have quoted on this, but chose not to, and that bishop is St. Alphonsus Liguori. St. Alphonsus, who was bishop of uh, Sant'Agata de Gotti, a diocese near Naples, Italy, was not happy about the suppression of the Jesuits, but he knew that what the Vicar of Christ binds on earth is bound in heaven. And he also knew how serious it is to incur excommunication. Now, here's what St. Alphonsus said about Pope Clement's abolition of the Jesuits. Quote, Poor Pope! What could he do in the circumstances in which he was placed, with all the sovereigns conspiring to demand the suppression? As for ourselves, we must keep silence, respect the secret judgment of God, and hold ourselves in peace, That quote is found in the Catholic Encyclopedia of 1912 in the article on the suppression of the Jesuits. So let's recap. St. Alphonsus was grieved by the papal decision at the same time he defended the pope. That is, he sought to excuse him, recognizing the extremely difficult circumstances in which he found himself. And St. Alphonsus did not resist or speak against this decision because, prudent or imprudent, he understood that the papal judgment was God's judgment, since what the Pope binds on earth is bound in heaven. So, listen up, Chris Jackson. Unlike Archbishop Beaumont of Paris, St. Alphonsus is a canonized saint and doctor of the Church, and as such is truly a model to follow. Tratcast Express is a production of Novos Ordo Watch, Check us out at tradcast.org, and if you like what we're doing, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution at novusordo.watch.org/donate.